Chapter Twenty Two of Isabel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Isabel, a Romance of the Northern Trail by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Two, Into the South. A long time before he awoke, Billy knew that he was not in the snow, and that hot stuff was running down his throat. When he opened his eyes, there was no longer a light burning in the cabin. It was day. He felt strangely comfortable, but there was a thing in the cabin that stirred him from his rest. It was the odor of frying bacon. All of his hunger had come back. The joy of life, of anticipation, shone in his thin face as he pulled himself up. Another face, the bearded face, red-eyed, almost animal-like in its fierce questioning, bent over him. "'Where's your grub, partner?' The question was like a stab. Billy did not hear his own voice as he explained. "'Got none.' The bearded man's voice was like a bellow as he turned upon the others. "'He's got no grub.' In that moment Billy choked back the cry on his lips. He knew the voice now, and the man. It was Bucky Smith. He half rose to his feet and then dropped back. Bucky had not recognized him. His own beard, shaggy hair, and pinched face had saved him from recognition. Fate had played his way. "'We'll divvy up, Bucky,' came a weak voice. It was from the thin, white-faced man who had sat corpse-like on the edge of his bunk the night before. "'Divvy hell,' growled the other. "'It's up to you, you and Sweetie. You're to blame.' The word struck upon Billy's ears with a chill of horror. Starvation was in the cabin. He had fallen among animals instead of men. He saw the thin-faced man who had spoken for him sitting again on the edge of his bunk. Mutely he looked to the others to see who was Sweetie. He was the young man who had clutched the can of beans. It was he who was frying bacon over the sheet-iron stove. "'We'll divvy, Henry and I,' he said. "'I told you that last night.' He looked over at Billy. "'Glad you're better,' he greeted. You see, you've struck us at a bad time. We're on our last legs for grub. Our two Indians went out to hunt a week ago and never came back. They're dead or gone, and we're as good as dead if the storm doesn't let up pretty soon. You can have some of our grub, Henry's and mine. It was a cold invitation, lacking warmth or sympathy, and Billy felt that even this man wished that he had died before he reached the cabin. But the man was human. He had at least not cast his voice with the one that had wanted to throw him back in the snow, and he tried to voice his gratitude, and at the same time to hide his hunger. He saw that there were three thin slices of bacon in the frying pan, and it struck him that it would be bad taste to reveal a starvation appetite in the face of such famine. Bucky was looking straight at him as he limped to his feet, and he was sure now that the man he had driven from the service had not recognized him. 
he approached Sweedy. "'You saved my life,' he said, holding out a hand. "'Will you shake?' Sweedy shook hands limply. "'It's hell,' he said in a low voice. "'We'd have had beans this morning if I hadn't shook dice with him last night.' He nodded toward Bucky, who was cutting open the top of a can. "'He won.' "'My God!' began Billy. He didn't finish. Sweetie turned the meat and added, "'He won a square meal off me yesterday, a quarter of a pound of bacon. Day before that he won Henry's last can of beans. He's got his share under his blanket over there, and swears he'll shoot anyone who goes to monkeyin' with his bed, so you'd better fight shy of it. Thompson, he isn't up yet, chose the whiskey for his share, so you'd better fight shy of him, too. Henry and I'll divvy up with you. Thanks, said Billy, the one word choking him. Henry came from his bunk, bent and wobbling. He looked like a dying man, and for the first time Billy noticed that his hair was gray. He was a little man, and his thin hands shook as he held them out over the stove and nodded to Billy. Bucky had opened his can and approached the stove with a pan of water, coming in beside Billy without noticing him. He brought with him a foul odor of stale tobacco smoke and whiskey. After he had put his water over the fire, he turned to one of the bunks and, with half a dozen coarse epithets, roused Thompson, who sat up stupidly, still half drunk. Henry had gone to a small table, and Sweetie followed him with the bacon. Billy did not move. He forgot his hunger. His pulse was beating quickly. Sensations filled him which he had never known or imagined before. Was it possible that these were people of his own kind? Had a madness of some sort driven all human instincts from them? He saw Thompson's red eyes fastened upon him, and he turned his face to escape their questioning stupid leer. Bucky was turning out the can of beans he had won. Beyond him the door creaked and Billy heard the wail of the storm. It came to him now as a friendly sort of sound. "'Better draw up, partner,' he heard Sweetie say. "'Here's your share.' One of the thin slices of bacon and a hard biscuit were waiting for him on a tin plate. He ate as ravenously as Henry and Sweetie, and drank a cup of hot tea. In two minutes the meal was over. It was terribly inadequate. The few mouthfuls of food stirred up all his craving, and he found it impossible to keep his eyes from Bucky Smith and his beans. Bucky was the only one who seemed well-fed, and his horror increased when Henry bent over him and said, in a low whisper, "'He didn't get my beans fair. I had three aces and a pair of deuces, and he took it on three fives and two sixes. When I objected, he called me a liar and hit me. Them's my beans, or Sweetie's. There was something almost like murder in the little man's red eyes. Billy remained silent. He did not care to talk or question. 
No one asked him who he was or whence he came, and he felt no inclination to know more of the men he had fallen among. Bucky finished, wiped his mouth with his hand, and looked across at Billy. "'How about going out with me to get some wood?' he demanded. "'I'm ready,' replied Billy. For the first time he took notice of himself. He was lame and sickeningly weak, but apparently sound in other ways. The intense cold had not frozen his ears or feet. He put on his heavy moccasins, his thick coat and fur cap, and followed Bucky to the door. He was filled with a strange uneasiness. He was sure that his old enemy had not recognized him, and yet he felt that recognition might come at any moment. If Bucky recognized him when they were out alone... He was not afraid, but he shivered. He was too weak to put up a fight. He did not catch the ugly leer which Bucky turned upon Thompson. But Henry did, and his little eyes grew smaller and blacker. On snowshoes the two men went out into the storm, Bucky carrying an axe. He led the way through the bit of thin timber and across a wide open over which the storm swept so fiercely that their trail was covered behind them as they traveled. Billy figured that they had gone a quarter of a mile when they came to the edge of a ravine so steep that it was almost a precipice. For the first time Bucky touched him. He seized him by the arm, and in his voice there was an inhuman, taunting triumph. "'Didn't think I knew you, did you, Billy?' he asked. "'Well, I did, and I've just been waiting to get you out alone. "'Remember my promise, Billy? "'I've changed my mind since then. "'I ain't gonna kill you. "'It's too risky. "'It's safer to let you die by yourself, "'as you're gonna die today or tonight. "'If you come back to the cabin, I'll shoot you.' With a movement so quick that Billy had no chance to prepare himself for it, Bucky sent him plunging headlong down the side of the ravine. The deep snow saved him in the long fall. For a few moments Billy lay stunned. Then he staggered to his feet and looked up. Bucky was gone. His first thought was to return to the cabin. He could easily find it and confront Bucky there before the others. And yet he did not move. His inclination to go back grew less and less, and after a brief hesitation he made up his mind to continue the struggle for life by himself. After all, his situation would not be much more desperate than that of the men he was leaving behind in the cabin. He buttoned himself up closely, saw that his snowshoes were securely fastened, and climbed the opposite side of the ridge. The timber thinned out again, and Billy struck out boldly into the low bush. As he went, he wondered what would happen in the cabin. He believed that Henry, of the four, would not pull through alive, and that Bucky would come out best. It was not until the following summer that he learned the facts of Henry's madness, and of the terrible manner in which he avenged himself on Bucky Smith by sticking a knife under the latter's ribs. 
Billy now found himself in a position to measure the amount of energy contained in a slice of bacon and a cold biscuit. It was not much. Long before noon his old weakness was upon him again. He found even greater difficulty in dragging his feet over the snow, and it seemed now as though all ambition had left him, and that even the fighting spark was becoming disheartened. He made up his mind to go on until the beginning of night, then he would stop, build a fire, and go to sleep in its warmth. During the afternoon he passed out of the scrub into a rougher country. His progress was slower but more comfortable, for at times he found himself protected from the wind. A gloom, darker and more somber than that of the storm, was falling about him when he came to what appeared to be the end of the barren country. The earth dropped away from under his feet, and far below him, in a ravine shut out from wind and storm, he saw the black tops of thick spruce. He began to scramble downward. His eyes were no longer fit to judge distance or chance, and he slipped. He slipped a dozen times in the first five minutes, and then there came the time when he did not make a recovery, but plunged down the side of the mountain like a rock. He stopped with a terrific jar, and for the first time during the fall he wanted to cry out with pain. But the voice that he heard did not come from his own lips. It was another voice, and then two, three, many of them, it seemed to him, his dazed eyes caught glimpses of dark objects floundering in the deep snow about him, and just beyond these objects were four or five tall mounds of snow, like tents, arranged in a circle. He knew what they meant. He had fallen into an Indian camp. In his joy he tried to call out words of greeting, but he had no tongue. Then the floundering figures caught him up, and he was carried to the circle of snow mounds. The last that he knew was that warmth was entering his lungs. It was a face that he first saw after that, a face that seemed to come to him slowly from out of night, approaching nearer and nearer until he knew that it was a girl's face with great, dark, strangely shining eyes. In these first moments of his returning consciousness, the whimsical thought came to him that he was dying, and the face was a part of a pleasant dream. If that were not so, he had fallen at last among friends. His eyes opened wider, he moved, and the face drew back. Movement stimulated returning life, and reason rehabilitated itself in great bounds. In a dozen flashes he went over all that had happened up to the point where he had fallen down the mountain and into the Cree camp. Straight above him he saw the funnel-like peak of a large birch wigwam, and beyond his feet he saw an opening in the birch-bark wall through which there drifted a blue film of smoke. He was in a wigwam. It was warm and exceedingly comfortable. Wondering if he was hurt, he moved. The movement drew a sharp exclamation of pain from him. It was the first real sound he had made, 
and in an instant the face was over him again. He saw it plainly this time, with its dark eyes and oval cheeks framed between two great braids of black hair. A hand touched his brow, cool and gentle, and a low voice soothed him in half a dozen musical words. The girl was a Cree. At the sound of her voice an Indian woman came up beside the girl, looked down at him for a moment, and then went to the door of the wigwam, speaking in a low voice to someone who was outside. When she returned, a man followed in after her. He was old and bent, and his face was thin. His cheekbones shone, so tightly was the skin drawn over them. Behind him came a younger man, as straight as a tree, with strong shoulders and a head set like a piece of bronze sculpture. This man carried in his hands a frozen fish, which he gave to the woman. As he gave it to her, he spoke words in Cree which Billy understood. It is the last fish. For a moment a terrible hand gripped at Billy's heart and almost stopped its beating. He saw the woman take the fish and cut it into two equal parts with a knife, and one of these parts she dropped into a pot of boiling water which hung over the stove fireplace built under the vent in the wall. They were dividing with him their last fish. He made an effort and sat up. The younger man came to him and put a bearskin at his back. He had picked up some of the patois of half-blood French and English. "'You seek,' he said. "'You hurt and hungry. You have eat soon.' He motioned with his hand to the boiling pot. There was not a flicker of animation in his splendid face. There was something godlike in his immobility, something that was awesome in the way he moved and breathed. He sat in silence as the half of the last fish was brought by the girl, and not until Billy stopped eating, choked by the knowledge that he was taking life from these people, did he speak, and then it was to urge him to finish the fish. When he had done, Billy spoke to the Indian in Cree. Instantly the Indian reached over his head, his face lighting up, and Billy gripped it hard. Mukoki told him what had happened. There had been a camp of twenty-two, and there were now fifteen. Seven had died, four men, two women, and one child. Each day during the great storm the men had gone out on their futile search for game, and every few days one of them had failed to return. Thus four had died. The dogs were eaten. Corn and fish were gone. There remained but a little flour, and this was for the women and the children. The men had eaten nothing but bark and roots for five days, and there seemed to be no hope. It was death to stray far from camp. That morning two men had set out for the nearest post, but Mukoki said calmly that they would never return. That night and the next day and the terrible night and day that followed were filled with hours that Billy would never forget. He had sprained one hip badly in his fall, 
and could not rise from the cot Mukoki was often at his side, his face thinner, his eyes more lusterless. The second day, late in the afternoon, there came a low wailing grief from one of the tepees, a moaning sound that pitched itself to the key of the storm until it seemed to be a part of it. A child had died, and the mother was mourning. That night another of the camp huntsmen failed to return at dusk. But the next day there came at the same time the end of both storm and famine. With dawn the sun shone, and early in the day one of the hunters ran in from the forest nearly crazed with joy. He had ventured farther away than the others and had found a moose yard. He had killed two of the animals and brought with him meat for the first feast. This last great storm of the winter of 1910 passed well into the break-up season, and once the temperature began to rise, the change was swift. Within a week, the snow was growing soft underfoot. Two days later, Billy hobbled from his cot for the first time and then in the passing of a single day and night the glory of the northern spring burst upon the wilderness the sun rose warm and golden from the sides of the mountains and in the valleys water poured forth in rippling singing floods the red bakneesh glowed on bared rocks moose birds and jays and wood thrushes flitted about the camp and the air was filled with the fragrant smells of new life bursting from earth and tree and shrub. With return of health and strength, Billy's impatience to reach McTabb's cabin grew hourly. He would have set out before his hip was in condition to travel had not Mukoki kept him back. At last the hour came when he bade his forest friends goodbye and started into the south. End of chapter 22 Recording by Roger Moline